You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Maniac, released March 6th, 1981. It was written by C.A. Rosenberg and Joe Spinell, based on a story by Joe Spinell, directed by William Lustig, and released by Analysis Film Releasing Corporation. (laughs) (laughs) It's very technical sounding, but they actually did a pretty good job with the release. According to various sources, the film cost between $350,000 and a million dollars total. The film was shot entirely on location in New York City over 26 days, often without any kind of permit. Joe Spinell began production on Nighthawks before he finished shooting this film, and because he was required to shave his head and mustache for that film, he is occasionally wearing a wig and fake mustache in Maniac usually for driving sequences he's also wearing a hat through like a lot of it that's so true i'm like it, you could have that fake hair sticking out of the hat no they, problem. and that's exactly what they did <laughs> because of the graphic violence the distributor decided against submitting the film to the mpaa for a rating and it finished its theatrical run with a 10 million dollar take had they submitted it for a rating it would likely have gotten an x which was typically reserved for pornography at the time director lustig and spinel joined with many indie filmmakers in demanding a distinction between X's for violence and for sex, specifically X-V or X-S. The film was protested by women's groups for its portrayal of violence against women. Gene Siskel famously walked out of the film after the quote-unquote shotgun head explosion scene and in his review claimed that the film could not possibly redeem itself from there. Analysis Film Releasing, in an effort to advertise the film, set up kiosks outside theaters, looping some of the film's more violent segments, which actually stirred up even more controversy than the bad press they were already getting. The LA Times refused to run ads for the film. They wouldn't even run a picture of the poster, which was Joe Spinell from, like, the waist down holding a bloody knife and a woman's scalp, a bloody scalp. So it's already a pretty violent poster. Yeah, but I don't feel like that's any worse than a lot of the other horror movies that, like, their their posters at the time were similarly gruesome. I don't disagree. Knives. Yeah, having a bloody knife stabbed into a chest or something doesn't, I mean, doesn't technically seem worse than holding a bloody scalp, but I think it's just a very visceral image. Yeah. Of course, Maniac made use of the fact that LA Times wouldn't run their ads by mentioning that in their ads everywhere else. Like, <laughs> the movie that LA Times was afraid to run ads for. Altogether, I think the protesting and critical reception only helped the box office. They were getting free commercials on the news every night because Mm -hmm. they were saying, oh, look at all these people that are so furious about this terrible movie. And it's honestly, like in comparison to other movies of the time, not crazy graphic compared to other horror movies that we've watched in the last year. Yeah, I don't, it's really surprising to me that this stands out in any way whatsoever. Yeah. The film was the first film banned in West Germany, a ban that was not lifted until 2019. <laughs> Maniac. <laughs> but, but West Germany, I mean, I guess the direction of West Germany is still yeah. a thing, but like it's mm-hmm. not. Yeah, it wasn't banned in West Germany after the wall came down, I guess, because there was no West Germany. Some say it's what helped bring down the wall. Yeah. 
Maniac was nominated but did not win its Saturn Award for Best Low-Budget Film, 1981. Michael Sambello, best known for his collaborations with Stevie Wonder, watched this film, and then he went home and he recorded a song. He wrote a song and he recorded it. And then a few years later, Flashdance needed music for their soundtrack, and he submitted a tape of all of his suggestions for their movie. And when his wife sent the tape to Paramount, she accidentally included a song that he wrote about this movie called Maniac. And it was so left field wrong for their movie that they were interested by it. And they said, we like this one, but can it not be about a guy killing a bunch of women? Can it be about dancing? Are you kidding me? No. The song that I've been singing all week every time you mention the was title? Was written <laughs> about this movie. <laughs> You've been waiting to tell me that all yes, week as I've been singing that happening. <laughs> I'm not making this up. The original lyrics. I couldn't find a recording. These are the original lyrics. He's a maniac, maniac, that's for sure. And he'll kill your cat and nail him to your door. That's literally how the original version of the song went. Did I miss the cat killing in this one? No, it's just the thing that a maniac would do. (laughs) I actually don't think that this maniac would do that. But that's how the original song went. (laughs) The song would go on to receive an Oscar nomination, but it lost to another song from the same soundtrack by Irene Cara. After the film's release, Joe Spinell led the charge to produce a sequel, eventually raising enough money to shoot a 10-minute promo to fundraise with called Mr. Robbie. Because the film is essentially unrelated to Maniac, I can talk you through the plot because the entire thing is available on YouTube right now. But basically, Spinell was disappointed with the response from women's groups to the first film, and he wanted to redeem himself in their eyes. Like, he wanted to make something that wasn't about violence against women. And so, in the sequel... He stars again as a completely different character. He's the host of a children's TV show. And he receives letters from young viewers that sometimes reveal instances of child abuse. And so the character acts as a sort of half Batman, half Joker, going around the city in clown makeup, killing abusive parents to avenge their children. That was going to be the plot of the movie. And they shot a 10-minute version of it that you can see online. And it's just that instance happening once. He reads a letter a kid... His father is abusive, and then he kills the kid's father. Uh, but before the Sorry, film... kid, you're now an orphan. <laughs> well, it's better than having a dad who literally dips your face in boiling water occasionally, which is what the kid was... Jesus That's Christ. how he was getting treated in the movie. I feel like somebody would notice that and have taken care they of did, the They did, and the already. whole point is that he's, he's literally sitting in his green room reading the article alongside the letter from the kid ah. about this father having gotten away with it because he claimed it was an accident. Mm-mm. But the kid wrote him a letter saying that he does this all the time when he's angry with me. The film was supposedly close to pre-production when Joe Spinell passed away suddenly in 1989. Though the story isn't completely clear, it sounds like Spinell was vaguely intoxicated and fell through a glass shower door and cut himself very badly. Ooh. He was a hemophiliac and he bled to death in his apartment. Really? Yeah. But that was. But he died in '89. That's that's when they were gearing up to do the sequel. He'd but it he'd was done a, a lot of he, stuff but after. But it had this. been a few years since he had done even this. Like yeah, short. I mean, Maniac shot in in '79, um, and this well, short was shot somewhere in, in the like middle '86 or yeah, so. Yeah, it was and, it was late. Okay, and he had also he'd been approached by producers because apparently John Wayne Gacy wanted 
him to play John Wayne Gacy in a John Wayne Gacy story. But, yeah, but you don't get a lot of leverage yeah, on who plays you. I don't you think you get to pick the person who plays killer. you. And honestly, I feel like if I were Joe Spinell, I would be insulted by that. I'd be like, fuck off, dude. I'm not going to do anything you want. You're yeah. an asshole. Yeah. Um, but uh, before the film could, could come together, he had passed away. When the remake rights were acquired in 2010, director Bill Lustig recommended Tom Sizemore to play the Frank Zito role. About a year later, it was announced that they'd gone another way with it. And Elijah Wood was cast in the lead. What? It was produced by Alexander Aja, who directed the Hills Have Eyes remake and Piranha 3D and High Tension. And you wouldn't think that it would be a great film with Elijah Wood, but I watched it today and it's actually not great. (laughs) Uh, Turns out um, the whole movie is in the killer's POV. Well, it's the point of having Elijah Wood in it if we don't get to see Elijah Wood. I bet you they only had Elijah Wood for a couple days. (laughs) Or like a week or so, and then they had him for voiceover for the rest of it. Oh my god! You just walk by this mirror real quick. There we go. We'll just yeah, exactly. This here and there. I think they they literally just green screened in reflections occasionally, and the rest of it is just voiceover from him. So they probably didn't need him for more than a week, and that was their their workaround for having the lead actor of a live action film only be available for a week. I because the rest of the time it's a cameraman walking around. Oh wow. Well, I mean, I think that that's doable if you do it right, but. I'm guessing they didn't do it right. <laughs> it's okay, but it's a very low budget remake. I would I would rank it below the original Maniac. I hope Elijah Wood got a lot of money for it. I think he was just a fan and he'd been oh, wanting really? to work in, in yeah, more horror type stuff and I think he just did it because he had a legitimate interest in uh the thing, but he wasn't available for a lot of time and this was their workaround for that. <laughs> we open On a shot of one of those coin-operated binoculars on the beach. Um, I like this as a first shot because it's kind of like, here's here's the beginning of the movie, and here's a set of eyes. And then we're going to put a coin in, and then you're looking through the killer's eyes for this whole first scene. Um, but I just like that the point of it being that you're, you're jumping into his perspective right away, Mm -hmm. which obviously the remake took to the extreme. Yeah. Um, and actually I shouldn't say that the whole thing is POV for the remake because there are dream sequences that are, that are shot in the third person, Mm -hmm. but I think that's fair. I think that would, I would still consider that POV because in your dream, you're not always looking through your own eyes. Sometimes you're seeing your younger self. A heavily breathing man drops a coin in and we get his perspective on a couple sleeping on the beach. Yeah. And this couple is confusing the hell out of ships that are offshore with their maritime flag blanket. (laughs) <laughs> i didn't even notice that yeah it's all like the different flags that you would have for like divers in the water or in distress and yeah. things like that it's like well what, what do you have going on out there well if you looked at the blanket it says fucking on the beach <laughs> in flag language <laughs> flangwage we call it the woman encourages the man to go get firewood because she's freezing and he eventually gets up to collect it the pov races up to the girl when the man leaves and rests a hand on her back she thinks it's her boyfriend until the killer yanks her by her hair and drags a straight razor across her throat. When the boyfriend returns, his arms loaded with driftwood, the killer garrots him from behind, and blood squirts out from around the wire, and suddenly Frank Zito sits up in bed screaming. So it's possible that what we've seen so far was a dream, but it also doesn't matter, really. Yeah. (laughs) Also, he fell asleep with, like, a hundred lit candles in his room. Yes. In his bedroom, Frank has hundreds of lit candles... (laughs) Like a shrine around a framed portrait of his mother, 
Frank Zito takes off his pajamas and starts observing scars on his chest. In a collection of inserts, we see a mannequin stained with what looks like blood in his own room. We cut across town to a pair of prostitutes on a street corner. One of them says she needs a hundred to make rent. They stop Frank as he walks by, and she reads him her menu before he agrees to her terms, and then they enter the hotel together. I believe it was the ultimate. Right. That's a hundred bucks is for the ultimate. The hotel manager here is played by director Bill Lustig. In the room, Frank asks the girl to pose like women in pornographic magazines. She climbs onto him in the bed, and he rolls on top of her. She compliments him a bit, and suddenly he's strangling her deep into the bed. I've never been less worried that an actress was actually being choked, because she's loudly screaming and pleading with him throughout this process, which I don't think a choking person would be able to do. As soon as she seems to die, Frank runs to the bathroom to throw up. He cries, and he turns back to the body, embarrassed by what he's done. Every shot of the girl in this scene is actually a freeze frame, so yeah. they wouldn't have to worry about her moving on the bed. <laughs> yeah, I, I made a note of that. I was like, oh, that's a still frame. Yeah, I think it's because uh, a large number of the victims in this movie, with the exception of the Anna character, are pornographic actresses. Because prior to this film, Bill Lustig had done a couple porn films that he was able to raise money to make this with. And the pornographic union always insists that all actresses must be moving at all times. <laughs> right. That's the rule. I also read that, uh, so on top of him using his paycheck from the two porn films that he had done, uh, this movie's budget was also made up of Joe Spinell's entire paycheck from cruising. He, he spent on the budget of this film because he was determined to get it made. Frank takes a razor to her hairline and scalps her on the bed, which from what I understand is, is easier than you'd think. Apparently all you have to do is cut the line and then it tears away very simply. Mm -hmm. Just if you're curious. Well, there's not much skin between your skull and... Well, there's not connective tissue, really. Yeah, it's literally just a fabric. It's like a carpet on your head. We see Frank heading into his building late at night with a human-sized trash bag. A neighbor sees him and assumes he's been out doing some Christmas shopping, which I'm sure Richard loved, because that makes this an arbitrary Christmas <laughs> film. <laughs> uh when he opens the bag, we find a mannequin inside. That's a relief. I was yeah. like, I was sure this was just a dead body, dead body. That yeah. it was so rigor mortised that he could just carry it standing upright. See, I thought it was just a, a, a dead body that was, you know, poor, poorly represented in film. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. possible too. Like it wouldn't be that stiff. Yeah. And he wouldn't be able to carry it that easily right? either. I know. He lays it across the bed and he lectures his other mannequins in voiceover for letting him go out as he dresses the new mannequin. He fishes the bloody scalp out of a bag and nails it to the mannequin's head. He reads a newspaper headline that reads, Maniac mutilates couple at beach, so I guess that wasn't a dream. Frank fills a guitar case with weapons and ammo, and then he fills himself with Cracker Jacks. <laughs> On his way out, he tells the mannequins he'll be right back. He pulls up to a nightclub and he follows a couple out of the parking lot. They park just off the road, and the man is being portrayed by special effects wizard Tom Savini. They start making out in the car, and then move to the back seat. The girl notices Frank watching them through the window, and freaks out, but the guy never sees Frank. For some reason, when she sees him, though, she says, I see something. Instead of immediately shouting that there's a man watching them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> they move back to the front seat, and suddenly Frank jumps on the hood, and fires a shotgun directly into Savini's face. His head erupts in a geyser of meat and blood that splashes across his date's face. Ah! 
like scanners, this was a real shotgun. Again, being fired by the special effects wizard Tom Savini on set. Uh, the last one was Dick Smith firing the shotgun, but he was the one who made the prosthetic head. So both of these guys got to shoot their own product. Uh, they had to get that <laughs> shot last and then quickly abandon set before cops arrived. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, like, this is the best shot of the film. So right. the fact that you'd walk out on this shot is yeah. silly. <laughs> but this was this was because they didn't have permits to film or fire a weapon on set. So they shot... And then they had a crew member waiting with a car with the trunk open. So he literally fired the shotgun. They they cut camera. Savini put the shotgun in the trunk of a car, slammed the trunk shut, and that guy drove off first. And then they packed up the rest of the set so that the gun was gone first. So that if mm-hmm. police came out, they could say, well, we don't have a gun here. I don't know what that was, but we're just making a movie. The dummy used for this scene, nicknamed Boris by Savini, is the same one he used to double himself in Dawn of the Dead. It was so soaked in blood by the end of its use here that they locked it in the trunk of this car with the demolished windshield and sunk it in the East River. (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to be suspicious at all. It's a shotgun blast in a car at the bottom of the river. And then when they open the trunk, there's a dead body in it. As Frank approaches the car, the woman squeezes down away from the windows, but he points the gun right in her face and pulls the trigger again as she screams. Which which seems counter to his M.O. so far. Yeah, you're ruining the wig that you're here to collect. At home, Frank tells his mannequins again how irresistible it is to kill people every time he goes out at night, and he wishes they would not let him go out at night. In the morning, we see a couple kids on a swing set until a mom shouts to them. Well, uh, there's also a scene where he's watching something on the news, um, which, oh. which isn't totally relevant, but again, it's another freeze frame. Right, but, the, but, the the picture on the TV is moving, but the freeze frame yeah, like around the, the, it. Yeah, yeah, the frame is still, but they just like comped in a, a screen of something. I think it's easier to comp into a still image than. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, and they even do this really great thing where, um, they have him turn off the TV, but it's from behind him, so you can't see the TV, and he just clicks it off. So that by the time he sits back down, you don't nothing. know that it was off the whole time. Y- yeah. yeah. In the morning, we see a couple kids on a swing set until the mom shouts to them. Denise, be careful. Don't swing so high. Even though the kids are barely moving on the swings. They hop on their bikes and ride off without helmets, and the mom has no problem with that. They crash headlong into serial killer Frank Zito, who warns them to be careful, but suddenly hears a photograph being taken. He looks up. (laughs) I like that he hears the photograph, but it's like this woman is easily 100 yards away. Yeah, there's no way he would hear this over like the wind of the park and everything. He looks up and he spots an attractive photographer moving through the park stepping away from her camera bag he approaches the bag and leans down pretending to tie his shoe and memorizes the woman's name and address from a tag on her camera bag and again she's really far away from her camera bag. i thought it was really weird that she got so far away from it like there's hundreds of dollars worth of equipment there you don't know this guy's not going to just take it that's the whole reason your name and address are on it is so you don't lose it that night we see frank doing a bit of window shopping staring down storefront mannequins and breathing heavily again we cut to a hospital where two nurses are finishing their shift they talk about the maniac on the loose as they share a newspaper the headline reads madness and mayhem maniac strikes again two slaughtered at verrazano bridge one nurse is left alone at the door and frank watches her from across the street the nurse gives up on her ride and ducks down into the subway 
but suspects that the man is following her and keeps looking up at him. I feel like I'd probably go back into the hospital where yeah. all yeah. the coworkers and people are so that I'm still at the place where my ride was going to pick me up from. But no, she, she ducks down into the subway. She pushes through the turnstile, but the train is pulling away just as she gets to it. She runs to a nearby ladies' room, or is it the men's room? I don't know I, what it was. I wasn't paying that much attention. Um, she runs to a restroom and tries unsuccessfully to silence her own panic breathing. Frank enters the restroom and walks through, finding one stall closed, and then leaves. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like his point was literally like, okay, well, I know where you are, so I'll just go out here and I'll wait for you to come out. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you finish. Yeah. When she works up the nerve to exit her stall, she moves to wash her face, and suddenly Frank is behind her to stab a knife through her back and out her chest. At home again, Frank taps his latest victim's scalp onto a mannequin with a thumbtack. Tappa, tappa, tappa. Nobody outdoes Little Debbie. Or was it was, was it named Little Debbie? It was like Little Something. Uh, it was Little Debbie, and she's just making desserts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I don't even know what it's from. It's from what? The Simpsons. It's from The Simpsons never heard of it <laughs> i think we need to learn something except tappa 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 it's like i would have killed for tappa 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 when i was your age <laughs> the hair color doesn't match the nurse's hair color at all but spinel blames it out loud on the woman bleeding in her own hair as she died it's like how dare you bleed in your hair we cut to the dark room of the park photographer when she hears her apartment doorbell ring she asks who's there and the conversation that follows makes absolutely no sense in a city currently plagued by a murderous maniac. Who is it? Yes, uh, my name is Frank Zito. You took my picture in the park. May I speak to you? Come in. It's amazing. I was just looking at a photo I took of you in the park. Really? Well, uh, it's a coincidence because what I wanted to uh, speak to you... Do uh, you mind if I take a look? Certainly. She makes drinks for the two of them and they take a seat on her couch. I was so confused at this point. I was like, okay. Is this your sister? I'm not going to back this up and, and, and watch it again because I really don't want to. But I can't wait for Patrick to explain to me why he- Why they seem to let, be best friends. Why is she letting him in? She doesn't know who he is. I, I was really hoping for a twist that she was also a killer. <laughs> okay. And, and She's uh, like a Dexter style, like she lures people into her place. Yeah, exactly. Frank tells her that instead of selling the photos that she takes for a living, she should just keep all the pictures and starve to death. He talks about photographs as a tool of preservation. She asks him what he does, and he says he's a painter, which is the closest we get to an actual job for him. I have no idea what he does for a living. I'm assuming that he just didn't tell anyone that his mom died and he's living off of her social security. Suddenly she's desperate to see his work. He asks if she'd like to go on a date sometime, and she rushes upstairs to get changed because they're going on a date right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Literally a couple minutes after she met this weird-looking guy yeah, who'd never explained how he got to her apartment. And she she's also way out of his league. Yeah, but I did see a picture of Joe Spinell's wife, and she is also way out of his league. So <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think it's impossible that Joe Spinell could bring down this girl, but... I think the way this scene plays out is not how that works. On their date, she tells him about an upcoming show that she has, and she invites him along for a shoot. We cut to a photo shoot in her apartment, and she photographs three models. Frank shows up to the shoot with a gift, a teddy bear in a box. Anna, the photographer, 
introduces Frank to one of the models, and he starts his grunty breathing once again as they get back to the shoot. Frank notices some jewelry that the woman took off between photo setups, and he pockets an earring from the pile. Later, it was a necklace. Yeah, it was a necklace. Was it a necklace? Yeah. Or, or it was, some, it was some kind of, I mean, maybe it was like a something you wear around your wrist, but it was a, a chain of metal. Oh, okay. I thought it was just a long earring. <sighs> <laughs> you don't know these fangled girl decorations. It's, it's, one of those, it's one of those earrings where the chain goes around and comes up to your nose ring. Right. And then it wraps around your wrist. So like, you can pick your nose all day. So, like, like, like Xerxes in uh, friggin' 300. Yeah. Just chains everywhere. This is Sparta. So he says it, right? Yeah, pretty much. I got the delivery right. This is Sparta. This is Sparta. Is this Sparta? (laughs) Later, the model gets home to her own apartment and prepares for a shower, or I guess a bath, when there is a knock at the door. Frank is there with her missing jewelry, and as he passes it to her through the open door, he reaches into her apartment and flicks open the lock before backing away. The woman returns to her tub, and Frank enters the now unlocked apartment. After her bath, she makes some tea and moves to the living room when Frank bursts out of her closet and tackles her to the ground. She seems unconscious before she hits the floor, and we get a weird freeze frame as they reach the ground. Yeah, I had already typed that she was dead. Yeah. Only for the next scene, it goes, oh, she's not dead. She's fine. (laughs) Later, in the same woman's apartment, she awakens bound and gagged on the bed, and he talks to her as if he knows her. I don't understand why you do these things. Don't lie to me! You try to pretend you don't know. Your hair is different, yeah. And you look different. But you can't fool me. I know it's you. Based on this dialogue, I'm assuming that Frank is suffering from something called the Fragoli delusion, which is a disorder akin to face blindness that leads someone to conclude that multiple people are in fact the same person in various disguises. It's touched upon in Charlie Kaufman's Anomalisa, wherein the lead character is staying at the Frigoli Hotel. But it also reminds me of scenes from Vanilla Sky, when the when Penelope Cruz keeps turning into Cameron Diaz, mm-hmm. and he can't keep track of who's who. In the scene, Frank tells the woman that they can finally be together again, mistaking the victim for probably his own mother. He tells her how scared he was hiding in the closet as a child. He tells her that he loved her and he needed her more than all those other men, implying she was a prostitute who locked him in the closet when she was on the clock. I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to keep you. So you'll never go away. Despite promising just now never to kill this woman, he takes out a knife and gags her again before stabbing her directly through the chest. He scalps the woman and we get a POV of his crazed glare with bright red syrupy blood dripping down the camera lens from her perspective. Back at his own place, he tells a child mannequin to stay in the closet to avoid mommy's punishments, and then he puts out a cigarette on the mannequin boy's chest, which explains the scars on his own chest that he was looking at earlier. He sits in a chair across the room, and he fires BBs into a target on the wall. The next day, Frank calls Anna in her dark room to invite her on another date to see a show tonight. Again, he gives her almost no time to consider the offer, but she's more than happy to accommodate him. Could you be ready in about 15 minutes, say? I can be ready in 10. Okay, I'll see you. Okay, bye. You've got five. Yeah. (laughs) Where are you? He pulls up outside her building and honks, and she rushes out to the car. 
She gives him a peck Classy. on the cheek. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> real nice. <laughs> she gives him a peck on the cheek and thanks him for sending flowers and attending the funeral of her friend that he killed. He asks if they can visit his mother's grave to deliver a wreath because it's Christmas time, Richard. <laughs> At the grave of Carmen Zito, he speeds through a few Hail Marys and can't hold back his tears. Was her middle name Espy? No. No. <laughs> That's an award that they give out to sports Carmen people, Carmen Esposito. Right? No, I get it. All right. Anna tries to comfort him and... He starts repeatedly shouting that Rita knew before putting his hands around her throat. She's unable to shove him to the ground and runs away. He chases her between tombstones, grunting all the way, but eventually she finds a shovel and swings it at him, slashing open his arm. Yeah, was that a shovel? Because it yeah. cuts him real good. Yeah, I think it was just a real sharp one. Must have been a fresh shovel. Anna gets away, and Frank kneels in the foggy graveyard, crying out to his mother. He starts hearing voices in his head. He hears his own voice from his childhood. Mommy. mommy has to punish you. Mommy, mommy, please don't lock me in the closet. Please, mommy, I'll be good. Frank. He stumbles back to his mother's grave and cries over it until a decaying hand bursts out of the grave to grab him and pull him down into the skeletal face of Carmen, quote unquote, S.B. Zito. Thank you. <laughs> And it's just a crazy, decaying face, but it still has intact hair, and it's screaming at him. Side note, according to her tombstone, his mother died on Christmas. <laughs> it says December 25th as her, as her expiration date. He collapses on his bed, and we get inserts of all of his mannequins watching him. Suddenly, the statues have all come to life and start to approach him on the bed with weapons. He screams bloody murder as they slit his throat and cut his hands off. They wrench at his neck until they tear his head completely off and start passing it around, screaming. One of the women attacking him here is headless to represent a woman that he decapitated, I guess? I, I guess. But the next stump that we see in the film is one we've already seen in another film. Can you guys guess where we saw this next stump? This year? Nope. Keeping in mind, Tom Savini was a special effects guy on this. I don't know those type of movies as well as... Mrs. Voorhees. Oh. It's it's Betsy Palmer's head, or, or lack of head, from Friday the 13th. Um, obviously, he had kept the prop and reused it here. It almost looks from outside the circle like they're eating him now. The next day, police bust into his apartment and find him dead on the bed with a single stab wound. Disappointed to find their killer already killed, they just turn around and leave. <laughs> They're just like, oh, well, it was worth a shot. They don't check for a pulse or anything. He nope. might as well have been sleeping. Like, for all they know, he's literally just sleeping there. Or, or pretending to be dead. I don't yeah. know. They close the door behind them as they leave. And how did they get there? Uh, I think, I would assume Anna told them, oh, my friend Frank Zito. Tried to kill me? Tried to kill Where me. Where does he live? I don't know. Well, he uses <laughs> real names, so they probably just looked up where Frank Zito lives. But then you can't just kick down the doors of every Frank Zito in the town. Sure you can. I could. They close the door behind them as they leave, and the camera creeps up to Frank's face in bed where his eyes snap open, and we cut to the title in red on black. Maniac. So he was just sleeping. What awful police. That's the end of our film. It's a very celebrated slasher film. 
slasher slash horror film. Um, and I'm not sure that it completely earns the praise that it gets. Um, I mean, it's well performed. Obviously, Joe Spinell's doing a great job. And uh, it looks nice, but it still feels very low budget, like to the point that they couldn't afford a B-plot. It's literally just following the killer as he kills people and resetting every time he kills someone. Yeah, there, there's no... I. I there's no threat of anything stopping him. Yeah, there, nothing is heightening. I mean, mm-hmm. I assume the police are on his tail the entire time. Um, that they've been they've been figuring this out, and probably when Anna called it in and was like, "Oh, Frank Zito tried to kill me," and then they're like, "Oh, well, that's the M.O. of the killer that we're looking for." Yeah, and they realize all these other people are connected, and that her best friend was recently killed, and they were like, "Okay, this is definitely the guy that we've been looking for." I don't even know why you need this police scene. Yeah, to be honest. I don't think it's necessary. It's, it's you the, can end it with him just getting eaten by the mannequins, you think? Well, because it's the only time that we're away from him. Uh, why Why do that now? Yeah. I also feel like it kind of cheapens the moment to show explicitly that that was his imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, that because his his head is still connected to his body yeah. <laughs> in the bed, so clearly the mannequins didn't come to life and kill him. I kind of liked it better in "Don't Go in the House" when we just let it be what's actually happening. If you want, yeah. Um, there's actually a lot of connections to "Don't Go in the House" because neither film deals with the police investigation of the murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just on the killer the whole time, and he's dressing up his victims in the clothes that he killed them in in his own home. And then they all come to life at the end and kill him. And he also has his dead mother, like, screaming at him the whole time. But some, somebody stabbed him. I guess it, he stabbed himself. He stabbed himself, himself. yeah. But, but yeah. he also could have just been bleeding from the shovel wound. But well, I think, the, it, but the, I think the there's, a, there's a machete in, in his, there yeah. when he was, you know, when he the still has a machete. But, yeah, I, I get why people like it because joe spinell didn't do enough horror films and he's he's a terrifying subject to center the film around um and i i i think it's interesting how he can go from seeming so crazy in some scenes and then being very charismatic when he's trying to pass as normal yeah like that's like he was actually pretty charming yeah and and i I had to make a note of that it's like okay he's actually a little charming and it's frustrating me yeah (laughs) Yeah, well, and that's a that's a pretty common thing for serial killers. Yeah, but the my problem with this film, I think more than anything, was not the bits when things were happening. It was all the bits in between because this film like had twice as much footage as it needed in order to tell the story it was telling. Yeah, but it was I guess it was just trying to be feature length, and it just didn't have enough story to carry it. But it was like. These shots would go on forever, and I'm just like, this I think is for boring. the subway kill, for sure, that was longer than it needed yeah. to be. But I, th- I think that their intention was to heighten, you know, the tension of the scene over the course of it. But I, I, I knew the whole time he was going to catch up with her, um, so it, was, it never felt like she was about to get away or that things were working out for her. Like nobody in their right mind watches that scene and sees him turn around and walk out of the restroom with one door closed and thinks, Oh, thank God one got away. And it's like, no, clearly she didn't get away. Yeah. But it's just, I, I don't know. I think even more than just the subway scene, like it just, the shots all felt really long and, and, and in general, I thought that had pacing problems. Yeah. 
No, that's probably true. And part of that is, is budgetary because, like I said, there was nothing to cut away to. You don't, like, we never see story. people yeah. without him, you yeah. know. Um, I mean, he's practically in every scene of the movie. I'm trying to think if there's any scene that he's not in. It. I mean, if if it's a scene that he's not in, it's a scene he will be in momentarily. He's, yeah, he's yeah. coming shortly. Yeah, he's about to enter it, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the effects are great. Um, all the, the throat slitting, the the garroting looks great. The shotgun thing was was awesome. Spectacular. Yeah, I mean, it's still it's not scanners, but it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I I don't like that kind of stuff, as you guys know. Yeah. Um, but I was like, wow, that was a really great prop. Yeah. And that kill in particular was very reminiscent of um, something in the the. Uh, this was in 1980, so it's right on the heels of the the Son of Sam case and david berkowitz who was in new york he terrorized people like this he literally shot people through the windshields of cars so there's a lot of that playing into people's like yeah recollections when they're watching this movie they're like oh that's exactly like that one serial killer this isn't a direct son of sam adaptation but it's very similar to his story and to to other famous serial killers but i think mostly david berkowitz um and obviously it reminded me a lot of don't go in the house um what are we thinking uh i mean i think this is still a thumbs up for me uh just because i i really like joe spinell's performance and i think the visual effects are enough for me it's a thumbs down for me i mean i kept i kept getting distracted i took it in a couple of pieces and even then i kept thinking uh, you know i kept pulling my phone out and getting distracted i'm like oh wait no no, i gotta watch this i gotta watch this because it would just it would drag for me yeah so. It, it gets distracted with its own story a little yeah, bit. So it's a it's a thumbs down for me. Uh, it's a down for me. Yeah, because <laughs> not just because heads it's a explode horror, in it. Not just because it's a horror film. That's not true. You gave a thumbs up to Scanners. I did, uh, but uh, it, it is a horror film that has nothing in it. it it's the I, I have no no sense of what's going on or why he's doing what he's doing or that someone's trying to stop him or ever will stop him. Yeah, it does have that um that don't answer the phone problem where uh, he they're referencing so many different serial killers that it's not 100% clear mm-hmm. what's motivating him. Is he does he think he's killing his mom? Is he trying to resurrect his mom? Is he mad at her for what she did or does he miss her because she died on Christmas when he was a kid? Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, we never really answer any of those questions. Um but also, I don't think it's great in terms of horror film because, like, it's not scary. No, it's not. You know, like, I feel like there's there's films that build suspense where you really can put yourself in the victim's shoes and you're just like, this is terrifying. But I don't feel like I ever felt that way in this film. I think that's a that's the casting of the victims was, was mishandled here as well. Well, but we also don't spend enough time with the victims to... to to care about what happens to them you yeah know, that you, we only get one with any kind of character development and yeah, she gets away yeah and so you know, part part of what makes a scary, horror film scary is that you don't want certain people to die right i mean there's always someone that you do want to die but usually you want to hope for it's like and you, and, and you know going in that anything goes someone's gonna die right but you, you always have at least a character who goes oh man I'm, I'm invested in this character now yeah and and who i really knows? hope this is the final girl yeah uh but there's no one in this movie like that and so it's just him and and maybe it's better as like a profile of a killer that you're just with the killer and this is what he does and this is who he is yeah but as a movie it didn't work for me that makes sense um our director here was william lustig 
He played Al, the hotel owner, uncredited. He also directed Maniac Cops 1, 2, and 3. I've actually seen Maniac Cop, believe it or not. I'm sure you have. It's got Bruce Campbell in it. Um, he also uh, directed the Uncle Sam movie that I used to assume was <laughs> from the makers of Jack Frost because they both had the, the holographic frozen, cover yeah, boxes. Yeah. Um, Lustig is also a producer on the 2012 remake with Elijah Wood. He seems to be a friend of Sam Raimi's since he has cameo roles in Army of Darkness and Darkman. Most of his IMDb is EP credits on documentary shorts with a focus on behind-the-scenes material for horror and thriller films. I can only assume that these are essentially DVD extras um, that he works for some company that pumps out, you know, interview materials for DVD extras. Um, On the Maniac DVD, there is a 49-minute documentary called The Joe Spinell Story uh, that I thought was actually pretty interesting, and that, too, you can find on YouTube along with uh, the seven-minute sequel uh, promo that they did. A few cast members from Ninth Configuration tell a story about how Spinell and Keach and others got into a brawl after hours and got dragged to jail, and Spinell entertained the jail guards with stories from working on The Godfather. The co-writer C.A. Rosenberg, just this, he didn't write on anything else. The writer, story, and lead character were Joe Spinell, Uh, He plays Frank Zito in the film. This is our eighth title from Spinell. After Cruising, The Ninth Configuration, Forbidden Zone, Brubaker, The Little Dragons, Melvin and Howard, and The First Deadly Sin last year. The music here was by Jay Chataway. Uh, This was his first composer credit, and he later scored Golan Globus titles Missing in Action and Invasion USA. He also scored Maniac Cops 1 and 2, and later... 42 episodes of Star Trek TNG, mm-hmm. 59 Deep Space Nines, and 54 Voyagers. Um, oh, and also 28 Enterprises. So he's been with Star Trek for a long time. Yeah. The editor was Larry Marinelli, and he also edited Happy Hooker Goes to Washington. Carolyn Monroe, her name rhymes with Marilyn Monroe, uh, she played Anna D'Antoni. That's... Uh, did you want to mention someone who's on the uh, makeup effects team? Oh, you know what? I didn't put together a Tom Savini list. Uh, Rob Bottin! Yeah. Is he, he's uncredited, right? Uh, he's uncredited, but he's on the list. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he uh, he worked with Tom Savini um, on a lot of these effects. And we'll see uh, Bottin's work later this year on a couple werewolf movies. Uh, one for Joe Dante and one for John Landis. Uh, but yeah, both of them are phenomenal. We've discussed their work at length. Uh, Carolyn Monroe played Anna D'Antoni. Uh, she, uh, prior to Maniac, she had appeared in a bunch of Hammer horror titles, a couple Dr. Fibes movies, Dracula AD 1972, and Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter. She was Naomi in The Spy Who Loved Me, and she also played a guard uncredited in 1967's Casino Royale. She appeared alongside Spinell previously in Star Crash, and again in 82 for The Last Horror Film, both Maniac and The Last Horror Film, were produced in part by her husband and Star Crash co-star Judd Hamilton. She was cast in this film after her husband provided the $200,000 that they needed to close out the budget. Mm. The role was originally offered to Daria Nicolodi in exchange for the producing partnership of her husband, Dario Argento, but the production of Argento's Inferno ran long and she had to back out. When Argento was involved, his regular collaborators, the Goblins, were set to do the score, which might have totally saved this film for me. Yeah, because oh man, the that goblins. would be so great. 
Abigail Clayton played Rita. She'll play a nun in So Fine later this year. Rita Montone played Hooker. She was Dee Dee Shore in The Children last year. <laughs> but who is Dee Dee Shore? Yeah. Oh, Tom Savini. I do have him here. Tom Savini was Disco Boy. <laughs> that was his credit. Uh, we've talked about his special effects work before this on Dawn of the Dead, Friday the 13th, Effects, all of which he appears in. This film is no exception. We'll see him acting again in George A. Romero's Night Riders later this season, but his makeup work appears in Eyes of a Stranger, The Burning, and The Prowler for 1981 alone. Hyla Mero played Disco Girl, bizarrely also a nun in So Fine later this year. Uh, Shannon Mitchell played the second nurse. She's a prolific porn actress before and after this film. A few porn directing credits include something called D.O.D. Dick of Death, which she also wrote. <laughs> so that's pretty she cool. She wrote it. Um, and I think I heard right. on another podcast review of this film that she uh, is responsible for uh, a lot of the gearing up to get porn stars tested regularly for STDs and has probably saved countless lives as a result of that program. So good for her. Um, Letterboxd, what are you guys thinking? I don't have it very high. I have it at number 17. It is above Earthbound and below The Devil and Max Devlin. All right. Richard? Uh, I have it at 22. Yeesh. Just below Scared to Death, which gets props just for having crazy mutant creature yeah uh but above home sweet home sorry joe spinell you just lost out to the singenor <laughs> uh, i have it in eight eight uh which is just under cabo blanco and just above fort apache the bronx i think you screwed up by no a good 10 or so <laughs> i don't think so um i think that's everything for maniac if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we're Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. By the way, new patron alert. We got one! Special thanks to Sid Rotten for his contribution to the show. He's now getting to vote for our monthly Patreon 70s review. It looks... Unless we get a lot of patrons in the next like couple days, like we're going to be reviewing The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant for april so all right sounds like a fun one we also have a discord now you can find a button at the top of our dot com and join the 24 7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past present and future also search for vintage video podcast on youtube and subscribe to our new channel there thank you so much for listening and i hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing on the right track which imdb describes like so lester is a homeless shoeshine boy living in a railway station He's got this funny knack for picking the winning horse's names out of the paper while shining shoes. When word gets around, though, everyone wants a piece of the action. So he's not living in a van down by the river? No. But this is Gary Coleman as the lead here. We leave you now with the trailer for On the Right Track. Lester's an orphan who's very unusual. Instead of a house, he lives in a locker in a train station. The kid picked the triple! And he has a special talent. He's a crook. That can make him rich. I want that money back! And get him in trouble. 20th Century Fox presents Gary Coleman, smaller than ever. And in his first motion picture role, he's on the right track. Starring Maureen Stapleton, Michael Lembeck, Lisa Eilbacher, Bill Russell, Herb Edelman, and Norman Fell. We love Lester. As the mayor. 
on the right track.